Thank you everyone for joining today. It's good to see a nice crowd. Um, if you, we, it's a pleasure to welcome here everyone here for the fourth session of What Does the Torah Say About Modern Economics with Rabbi Jonathan Zerian. Um, if you have questions during class, feel free to ask them in the chat, both on Zoom or on Facebook Live. The chats will be monitored, as well as if there are any times when Rabbi Zerian takes breaks for questions. Source sheets for today are going to be shared on screen and will be shared in chat in both chats. And if you want to catch up with the previous sessions, recordings are available on our Facebook page at Facebook slash Trisha Institute slash videos. And with that, I want, with that, Rabbi Zerian, the floor is yours. Okay, great. Okay, so thank you. Um, it's good to see everyone. So the, the first three weeks of this series, we really took a bird's eye view. The first two weeks we focused on Yovel. Um, and we tried to ask the big question, does the Torah have a unique uh, vision for the economic system? Um, or is it reducible to the systems we know, socialism, capitalism, however you would de define them? Um, and then in the second week, we moved to the question of even if the Torah does have a unique vision, uh, is it a vision that can equally be implemented in a society which is completely built around the Torah? Or is it dependent um, or rather, it's not dependent on that, but can be introduced piecemeal um, into a non-Torah-based society. In week three, we moved to the question of what is it um, that changes the way the Torah thinks about economics? What factors does the Torah introduce um, that are not classically considered economic? Um, issues like fraternity, um, where um, using Adam Smith's model contrasting the way he presents himself in Wealth of Nations versus theory of moral sentiments. We note we noted that the economy, so to speak, is where we function on justice. Uh, and we don't assume that uh, people are trying to be kind, um, but simply trying to be fair because they're dealing with strangers. Um, and there's no reason for them to uh, to um, give things away for free. They just have to be honest. Whereas when you're dealing with your inner circles, um, you might owe them more benevolence or what he would call beneficence. Um, and how halacha is complicated by the fact that, or the Torah's vision is complicated by the fact that we are supposed to view other Jews as brothers. And therefore, um, we don't have the liberty of just saying, well, I owe my inner circles one thing and something else in my outer circles, at least not in a fully Torah society where everyone participating, um, even if they don't know each other personally, is considered a brother and therefore issues like benevolence are incorporated into the economic system itself. Um, but that was big, big picture. Today, I want to move now to, um, I wouldn't say um, a small issue, um, but we're going to try to answer a big question through a very particular issue. The big question I want to ask is, um, does the Torah's economic vision have to be relevant at all? Or is it possible that at least certain um, laws that emerge from the Torah um, are only circumstantially relevant? Or to make it clear, um, the case we're going to talk about is pricing. Right, The Torah clearly has rules about overcharging. Right, if there is a price, you cannot overcharge. We'll see the details of that in a minute. But fundamentally, the Torah has a rule, um, has many rules rather, 
um, that relate to a society in which there are prices. And if there are prices, you have to respect it. But you could then take that law in two ways. You could say that the fact that the Torah has laws about overcharging and overcharging assumes a world in which there is a price. And therefore, if there's a price, you in theory can be charging more than that price. If the Torah assumes that, then the Torah must also assume that every possible economy must have prices. Because if there was no such thing as a price, then the laws of overcharging, the laws of what we'll see, would just cease to exist. Because you could say you can't charge more than the price, but if there were no prices, then you couldn't overcharge. Um, so does the, the fact that the Torah says that you can't overcharge prove that every society must have prices because otherwise the Torah would practically be deemed, or a particular Torah law at least, would be practically deemed irrelevant? Or do we say that the Torah, at least in certain circumstances, is okay being reactive to circumstances, but doesn't necessarily require those circumstances exist? And therefore, it's possible to say that in a world where there is such a thing as a price, the Torah mandates that you can't overcharge, but the Torah says nothing about whether or not a, a world has to have prices. Economy has to not have a concept of set prices. That's really what we're going to see, not just prices, but set prices or objective prices. Um, and then we can extrapolate from this local issue to a much bigger issue, which is, does every economic law that the Torah have indicate what realities must exist on the ground within your economic system? Or does the Torah simply say that if circumstance X exists, then the law is Y, but it doesn't matter whether or not, it doesn't matter to us whether or not such a circumstance exists. Now, I know that sounds a little bit vague, but we're going to see it play out um, in the very specific issue of, of pricing and overcharging. So with that, I'm going to pull up the source sheets and you'll see, uh, you'll see what I mean. Okay. First things first, um, there are two major Torah laws or halachic issues that relate to pricing. We are going to focus today on one, and hopefully in two weeks, um, or maybe we can switch around the order next week, I'm not sure, um, we'll deal with the second. But there are two laws in halacha that relate to pricing. One is ona'a. The laws of ona'a are sometimes referred to as the laws of overcharging. But as we'll see in just a moment, a more accurate um, interpretation or more accurate translation is probably deceptive overcharging. The Torah forbids one to deceptively overcharge someone else. Now, there are cases in which you do that viciously and intentionally. And there are cases where it's accidental but there's still deception, unwitting deception, but deception nonetheless. And as we'll see in both cases, that has to be remedied, right? If you overcharge either intentionally or unwittingly, but in a case in which the buyer is deceived, so the Torah calls that ona'ah, and that problem must be rectified. That's the issue we're gonna talk about today. 
There is a second issue, which we will not talk about today, which is hafka'at sha'arim, which is price manipulation. Now, the difference between these is actually is very clear. Okay? So the difference goes very simply like this. The laws of Ona'ah exist in a world where, let's say, the price of um, a loaf of bread is, uh, I don't know, six shekel, okay, or whatever it is in America, okay? In Israel, it's price controlled, so let's say it's about that, six shekel, whatever it is. I'm not really sure. Um, at this point, four of my kids are celiac and gluten-free bread is not price controlled. So I'm not really sure what the price is on regular bread anymore. I haven't bought a loaf of regular bread in months. Um, but I let's say six shekel. Fine. Ona'ah would be a case where instead of charging me six shekel, the store charges me nine shekel. That's overcharging. Hafkat she'arim, price manipulation would be not where they overcharge me, but where um, all the producers of bread um, get together and between whatever, uh, lobbying to the government um, and artificially producing less bread to create scarcity, drive the actual price of bread from six shekel a loaf up to nine shekel a loaf. So now the price is legitimately nine shekel. And if they charge me nine shekel, it's not ona'a. But the process they used to get bread to be from it being six shekel to nine shekel, right? That is hafka'at sharim. That's price manipulation, right? So ona'a responds to the price as it is. Hafka'at sharim is where the sellers manipulate the market such that the actual price goes up, right? Those are the differences. We're going to focus on number one, right? Is where there is a price and you are supposed to respect that price. And if you don't, that is called ona. So let's first see the basics. So this emerges from Psukim and Vayikra Perakafe in Vayikra chapter 25 and number two. So the law is that as we talked about two weeks ago, when you sell your ancestral property, you don't sell it for life. You're not allowed to sell it for life. You only sell it until the Yovel. And therefore, if someone sells his property 25, in the 25th year of the Yovel, sale is the wrong word. What they're really doing is they're giving their property in a long-term lease, a 25-year lease to, right? So, Ruvain sells his property to Shimon, but it's in his ancestral land. It's not really a sale. It's a 25-year lease. Now, because the Torah doesn't like when people sell their ancestral lands, there's a mechanism in place of redemption. Right? He has the right, or his relatives have the right, to redeem the land from Shimon, from the buyer, or from the leaser. Now, what price do you buy that land back at? So the Pasuk says, very simple. If you sold it for a quarter of a million dollars and it is the, there are 25 years left to the Ovel, so very simple math says that you essentially leased it at a price of $10,000 a year. 
And therefore, if you want to redeem it, so now you prorate it. So five years in, you want to buy it back. That means that there's 20 years left at $10,000 a year. The buyback price is $200,000. That is the context to the laws of Ona. So the Pasuk says, Based the more years, the higher the price. The less, the less the price, because essentially, he didn't really sell you the land. He sold you a number of harvests. Right? That's really what he did. Because you can't sell property forever, essentially what he did is he leased you the property for 25 harvests. And you shall not oppress, but you shall not overcharge your friend. And fear God, because I am God. I am Hashem, your God. So here is the context for the laws of Ona'a. Right? There is a price. Right? In this case, the land was, was deemed to be worth $250,000 for a 25-year lease. Therefore, if you want to redeem it five years in, there's a very specific price. And now you must redeem it for $200,000. That is the law. And you cannot diverge from that price. Now, inexplicably, we will see that um, legally, despite the fact the original context of the laws of overcharging are in the context of real estate, in the context of land, um, halakhically, uh, land actually is an exception to the rule and does not have the normal rules of overcharging, um, which is a fascinating discussion, which we cannot get too much into. But this is the source of the laws of overcharging. The Mishnah tells us that not all overcharging is created equal. And the Mishnah says, Ha'ona'a, right? The laws of overcharging are ba'akesef. The magic number in overcharging is four sela out of 24, i.e. one-sixth. Now, what is the magic of one-sixth? The, the Gemara at number four clarifies. Here's how it works. If the overcharge is less than one-sixth, and I'm going to say overcharge, but the truth is the same is true for underpaying, okay? It works both ways, but we're gonna focus on overcharging just for simplicity. So if you overcharge by less than a sixth, the sale stands. There is no need to rectify it. The sale stands. If the overcharge was more than a sixth, so that is too egregious, the sale is nullified. Shtut, if you manage to overcharge by precisely one-sixth, so kana, the sale stands, but machzir ona, the seller must return the overcharge one-sixth. Okay? So there's three possibilities. If, let's leave the quarter of a million because getting six out of a quarter of a million is not going to be fun, okay? Uh, we could do 240000 if you want, right? So let's make it 240000 and not $250,000. So very simple. If you overcharge, if you charge him $270,000, the sale stands and there is no recourse for the buyer. If 
you charge $300,000. So then the entire sale is nullified and the property goes back, you return all the money. And if you, you charge precisely $280,000, right, which is a sixth more than $240,000. So then the sale stands, but you have to return the $40,000. And therefore by the end, the buyer maintains his control over the land. And the seller will have acquired $240,000, but will have to return the excess $40,000. Those are the three possibilities that Ona uh, offers. Now, there is a little bit of unclarity, right? The Gemara tells you that if you charge $270,000, the sale stands and the $30,000 need not be returned. However, um, as the Rush notes in number five, um, there's two ways of understanding that law. One is that less than a sixth, it's still prohibited for me to sell my $240,000 property for $270,000. It's just that it was forbidden for me to do it, but you have no recourse, right? That's a monetary statement, right? Not every crime can be rectified in court. That extra 30,000 that I charge, I keep it. I'll take it up with God, but it was forbidden, but you can't do anything. Possibility one. Or possibility two is that no, I actually have a range that I'm allowed to charge, right? A price is a little bit flexible. And therefore the price is actually the standard price and a range of up to a sixth more. And therefore it was permitted for me to charge the extra $30,000. Um, not just, I can't be forced in court to rectify the situation, but in fact, it was permitted. So the rush, Rabbeinu Asher in the 13th century in Germany writes, He assumes that it's forbidden. It's just not something that can be rectified. It is forbidden to overcharge even a sixth. But the sages said that up to a sixth, the buyer in the end of the day is willing to waive his or her rights to the uh, overcharge. Because that's how sales work. It's very hard for buyers and sellers to figure out the exact price. There's always going to be a little bit of room for error. And therefore, because people know that precision is difficult, they're willing to waive their rights up to a sixth of the price. But let's say that's not the case. The buyer is a normal buyer. He doesn't know the exact price, but the seller is an expert and knows the exact price to the cent and therefore is taking advantage, or the other way around, and the buyer, right? The buyer is a uh, antiques dealer, and he sees that something that someone's selling for $5 at a garage sale is in fact worth a million dollars, right? Meaning one person is taking advantage. Then it is forbidden to take advantage. If it's less than the six, there's no way of rectifying it in court, but it's forbidden. So the rush assumes that the magic sixth is only a question 
of whether or not the court can force the sale to be fixed, but it's always forbidden to take advantage of the seller or the buyer if you have more expertise and know that you're under that you're overcharging or underpaying, even if that number is less than a six. Shulchan Aruch, however, is unsure about this and writes, it is uncertain whether it's permitted to overcharge less than a sixth. If it's more than a pruta, right? A minimal amount, right? So he's not sure, right? So here we have two possibilities. The magic number is clearly a sixth, but it's unclear why under a sixth of overcharging or, or underpaying is not rectifiable in court, either because it's just permitted because there's a range of prices or because Look, there's certain things that the court just has to overlook. You shouldn't do it, but you know what? Mistakes happen, and that's just built into the system. Okay. Now, why do I say that the proper translation of ona'a is not overcharging or underpaying, but deceptive overcharging? So that's because of the law that's recorded in number seven. The Rambam writes, if I'm honest, then it doesn't matter what price I charge, there's no ona'a. Ketzad, what do I mean? If someone says, listen, I'm going to be honest with you. I bought this for five bucks, but I'm going to sell it to you for a hundred. Take it or leave it. I don't, you don't have to buy it. But if you want it, just know I want 20 times markup. That's it. Ain lo alav ona. That is not ona. Right? So what's clear is that the Rambam says ona is not overcharging. It's deceptive might be too strong a word because again, it could be accidental, but it's a case in which the terms of the deal were not clear. Right? Either because I deceived you willingly or because we made a mistake, right? Meaning you and I both thought that the price was $240,000. If I charge you $270,000, if I did it intentionally, maybe I shouldn't have done it, but there's nothing you can do about it. If I charge you $300,000, you have to, I have to renege on the whole deal. And if it's 280,000, the sale stands, but I pay you back the 40 grand. However, if I say to you, listen, I really like this part, property. I like it. Why? Because I do. Right? I don't want to part with it. I paid $240,000. I'm going to be totally honest with you. It's worth $240,000. But to me, it's worth more. I like it. I like it. Why? I don't know. Right? It's near the shul that I like davening in. It has a view. I don't know. Right? Objectively speaking, there's a bigger shul down the block. Right, but I like this little shtibel and I want to be able to walk. I like waking up at you know 644 for my 645 minion. So to me, it's worth more. You want the house? It's a million. A million. Cool million. I don't care. Right. So the Rambam says that's not Ona'a. Right. Ona'a requires a certain amount of deception. But if I just tell you, listen, I don't want to part with it. I don't want to part with it. That's fine. The rush takes it even farther. The rush says not only can you avoid cases of ona'a by being totally explicit, 
there are certain categories that just don't have a price. So the Russian nine says, Lo the whole laws of Ona'a apply to something that has a known price. And I made a mistake in my evaluation. Either I'm okay or okay, the buyer or the seller. But let's say you don't, right? Let's say it doesn't have a price. It's an heirloom, right? It has emotional value or what the Gemara calls it's not a standard thing. It's not the six shekel loaf of bread I bought in the store. It's my homemade recipe. And that's not price controlled, right? That's worth whatever I'm willing to, right? My secret recipe of sourdough from the starter that I have passed down from my great, 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 great grandparents, right? This is this starter dough, this, this starter for the sourdough has been has been aging for 250 years, right? I charge whatever I want. What price is that? I don't know. How many people have 250-year-old starter? You want to try to figure out what the price is? It's very, right? It doesn't have a price. The rush says the laws of Onan just don't apply at all. Done. There's no such thing because there's no price. Okay. This is the background. And now let me pose the, the million-dollar question. Okay. I shouldn't use numbers here. I'm just going to pose the, the question. Right? We'll leave money out of it. We have this law called Ona. It tells me that if there is a price, I cannot overcharge. If I do overcharge, there are strict rules. If it's less than a sixth, it might be forbidden. It might not be, but you can't do anything in court. If it's exactly a sixth, the sale stands, I return the sixth. If it's more than a sixth, not, then the entire sale evaporates into thin air. The Rambam tells us, however, that there needs to be an element of deception. But if I tell you that I'm overcharging you because I don't want to part with this good, this item, I don't want to part with this property, and I tell you, listen, take it or leave it, Ona doesn't apply because I have the right to do that. The rush goes farther and it tells us that there are certain categories of, of things like my homemade sourdough from my 250-year-old starter that it just doesn't have a price. So whatever price I put on it, that's what it is. Don't try telling me that I overcharge you. There is no objective price to this special sourdough. There isn't. The, you know, the angel bread that you buy in a makolet in Israel sure has a price. This, no price. Okay. What did the world of the Torah or the world of Chazal look like? So the world, as is clear from other places in the, in the Talmud, was pretty simple. You lived in a city. You didn't travel that much. Traveling took a long time and was dangerous. If you wanted to buy something, so if you lived in a big city, you went to the market. If you lived in a small city, you came to the big city on Mondays and Thursdays for market day. There was a market and there was a price. And there was basically one, maybe two markets you were ever exposed to. And there was, and the price was whatever it was. In such a world, the laws of Ona make sense. You went to the market, there were 10 stands, they sold whatever they sold, the price was ever it was. People didn't have radically different prices because 
how could they? <laughs> they were just all sitting there in the market. There was a price, right? The reason that there's such a thing as price gouging Gouging is because, right, Hafgad Sharim was literally, Sha'ar means price, it also means gate. It means you would go to the gate, you would go to the market, there would be a price. You don't charge more than that. And if all the sellers got together and colluded with each other, you could manipulate the price in the entire market. And that's Hafgad Sharim. But the reality was that more or less, items had prices. And because they had prices, I could tell you, don't overcharge. If you do overcharge, this is the law. Fast forward to 2022. What is the price? What is a price in 2022? This is a very complicated question. And it's a very complicated question for many reasons. First of all, there is no such thing as a local market. Period, right? In Israel, if I want to buy something at the store, if I want to buy a cell phone, it is exorbitantly expensive. If I want to buy it for less, so then I have an option. I can go on Amazon. If I go on Amazon and I spend more than $49, then shipping is free. And I can buy my cell phone from America and it will be cheaper. And if I want to buy it for even less, then I will buy it from um, AliExpress, right? Many Israelis will just buy their phones from AliExpress. Yes, when it comes to the country, I'll have to pay the 17% VAT, but okay. And if it's not a cell phone, it's a toy, oh, then I have even more options. Because if I buy it in Israel, the toy will cost $200, okay? Whatever that is now, 700 checkout. But if I buy it on Amazon, so if... I hit the sweet spot, which is more than $49, then I get free shipping. And if it's less than $75, I get a VAT exemption. I don't have to pay taxes. So I, instead of paying 700 shekel, right, $200, if I can get it on Amazon for $60, I get it shipped from America for free shipping, right? Free shipping. I don't even pay shipping. It's amazing, right? If... So one complicating factor is Amazon, AliExpress, right? And the difference in prices is crazy, right? I know with, uh, you know, you know, a few years ago, the big thing started, people, people started reeling was wigs, right? That they figured out who made the shaitals on AliExpress, right? And if you bought it from the from Shaitelmacher, it cost $3,000. And if you found, ordered it from the, person in China who sold it to the Sheitelmachers, you got it for 25% the price, right? So everyone around here was just ordering their Sheitels on AliExpress, right? Because why not? It was 25% the price, right? But forget that, right? So one proper, proper problem is international shipping, Amazon, AliExpress, and Alibaba and all that stuff. Then there's the second problem, which is luxury items. We all know that the same, right? There's one company, one parent company that owns Old Navy and Gap and Banana Republic, right? Banana Republic is the highest end. Gap is middle. Old Navy is the lower end. The same t-shirt, if you stamp Old Navy on it, is worth 10 bucks. 
Gap, 25 bucks. Banana Republic, 50, right? So a second complicating factor is luxury. We pay for stand, right? Pay for the name, right? Or take something like a can of Coke. A can of Coke in, you go buy 50 cans of Coke in Costco, it costs you 20 cents each. You buy one can of Coke at the Macola, it costs you a dollar, right? You buy a, a can of Coke at a ball game, it's $6, right? And if it's and if it's a bottle of beer and you're at and for some reason you're in Qatar for the World Cup, you have to walk eight miles to the fan zone and pay God knows what price. Okay, right? So the complexity of the modern market makes it that when I say don't overcharge, you would say, Great, I won't overcharge. What does overcharge mean? Right? I'm currently sitting in Israel. So when you say don't overcharge, what do you mean? I can't overcharge you the price of the Makolet. I can't overcharge you the price of the supermarket. I can't overcharge you the price of the ball game or the toy. I can't overcharge you the price that what? If I go to Mac stock or Amazon or AliExpress, do I have to incorporate that or not? Does it matter if it's above $75, less than $75? Does it matter if I bought it on Friday? So I bought it on the Black Friday sale and on the Black Friday sale, it happened to be less than $75. So I didn't have to pay that. But today it's more than $75, right? So it's not just that then it was 60 and now it's 80, but it's 80 plus 17%, right? Good luck figuring out what a price is in the modern market, right? It's not just that, it's that our market, our globalized market, plus the fact that we understand that context matters and brands matter and all that stuff makes it that a price, what? is a price. So the modern post game come and they say, wait a second, the Torah has a whole set of laws. Don't overcharge. That's wrong. And you have to rectify it. And then they look at the modern market and they say, okay, but what is a price? What is a price? And here's two approaches emerge, really two and a half approaches. Okay. One approach looks at it and says, listen, if the Torah says that you can't overcharge, then in every single society, there must be a way of figuring out the price. It looks complicated. Sure, it's complicated. But there is a price. There is an objective price. Now, e economists might give suggestions of what an, what an objective price might look like, right? So if, for example, you're influenced by, I would say Marx, but it's not really true because Marx took it from Adam Smith. But okay, fine. Um, then you would say, yes, there's such a thing as a objective price. It's called the labor theory of value. However much labor went into something, that's the price. There may be a difference between how Smith used it and Marx used it, but this is not a share on Smith versus Marx. One of them may have used it descriptively. One of them may have used it normatively. Okay, fine. We can quibble about Smith and Marx forever. Um, but there are theories within economics where someone would say, listen, there is such a thing as an objective price, okay? For example, the labor theory of value, however much work went into it, you figure out how much you're supposed to be paid by the hour, how many hours of work went into the object, that is the price. And if the Torah tells us that you're not allowed to overcharge and overcharging assumes a price because you got to figure out what the, what the standard is, then forever there must be prices. That's one model. And then you can divide as to whether that's true in theory or in practice, right? Meaning you can say there must be prices and I know what it is, 
or there must be a price, but I acknowledge it's hard. So maybe practically I can't figure it out. But fundamentally, there must be such a thing as a price because the Torah must always be actively relevant. Or you could say no. The Torah tells you if there's a price, then don't take advantage. Then don't overcharge. But the Torah never said there has to be a price. It could be that there's a world in which an entire set of laws is basically irrelevant because the reality upon which it is predicated ceases to exist. And that's okay. Um, yes. <laughs> Noah points out, yes, there's always free shipping from a friend who has room for a small package. That That is true, yes. My mother just came in from America. And yes, that is, that is the other way to ship things from America. Yes, we know that. Okay. <laughs> um, so what do we do? Okay. So you know what? I'm going to skip Rav Asher Weiss and I'm going to go to the opposite extreme. So here's Rav Vosner. Rav Vosner was the posek in B'nai Brak until a few years ago. Um, Rav Vosner lived for a very long time. Um, he was a posek. So therefore he saw many, 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 many generations of Psak. He lived to like I don't remember, 104, 108, something like that. He was a posek for like a century. Um, very, very, very important Haredi posek. And he, in two lines, in number 13, says, Binyan hafkat sharim When it comes to price manipulation and overcharging, to our great chagrin, everyone wants to become rich by raising prices and overcharging. The whole world is violating, overcharging, price manipulation all the time. That's all he says. He does not explain how he knows that, but he tells you. Look at the world. Everyone's charging too much. That's what I know. Now, I'm going to assume that that's because he thinks that there is such a thing as an objective price. Right, call it labor theory of value or whatever your pet theory of objective pricing is. He thinks that there is such a thing as a price. If the Torah says you can't overcharge, then in every society there must be a price. The problem is he looks around and he knows that a can of Coke, I mean, I don't know if he ever went to a baseball game, but okay, maybe he heard rumors that the price of a can of Coke in B'nai Brak, in the Makolet, was not the same as a can of Coke if you went to the Maccabi Stadium, just uh, a few miles away. He heard rumors. He heard rumors. And he says what that proves to me is the whole world is overcharging all the time. That's it. I don't know what's going on, but everyone is violating this. But what you see is that according to Vuzner, if the Torah says you can't overcharge and overcharging assumes a price, then there must be a price. And if I see that in certain places they charge 25 cents for a can of Coke and in certain places they charge $4, I don't know what the price is, but I know that $4 is more than one-sixth more than 25 cents. So somebody is doing something that they should not be doing. Ruzalman Nechemya Goldberg takes the middle view, which is there is such a thing as a price because the Torah says there's such a thing as a price. But admittedly, it is hard to figure out what that price is. So in 12, Rav Zalman Nechemia Goldberg, who was a leading Dayan, a leading rabbinical judge in Israel, he says, uh, svira He says, the best I got for you, most reasonable possibility, he lived what do most stores sell, sell it 
average, or I don't know if he means mode or median. I don't know what he means, right? I don't know if he means average or he means mode. I really don't know. But whatever the majority does, then based on that, calculate Ona. Right? So again, Rizal Nehemiah says, look, I know it's complicated, but fundamentally, if the Torah thinks that you can't overcharge and overcharging assumes the existence of prices, then you there must be a price. What is the price? I don't know. The mode, the median, good luck figuring it out. Um, if you look in 14, I just summarized for you, the Eirach Shai has several suggestions. Maybe it's the cheapest price is the real price or the average price, or maybe there's a range, the highest and the lowest, highest and lowest of what? I don't know. The, you know, within reason, I'm not really sure. But both Rav Zalman Chemi Goldberg and Rav Vosner say, look, fundamentally, if the Torah says you can't overcharge and overcharging means there's a price, there must be a price. Is it hard to figure out? Maybe it's hard to figure out. But the Torah must actively be relevant in all generations. You can't figure it out? So figure it out. It's hard to figure out? Maybe I can't implement it. Maybe it'll be hard in court to prove you owe money. But fundamentally, it has to apply. Rav Asher Weiss takes a totally different approach. Rav Asher Weiss, who is currently a leading POSIC in Israel, um, very popular across all communities. He is he's Hasidish, but he is open to the modern Orthodox, Datilumi community. He's born in America, so he knows English perfectly and he knows Hebrew perfectly. Very popular POSIC. He says, look, you got it wrong. And he says, said, listen, most things nowadays, it is difficult to establish a price. Even setting an upper or lower limit can't be established exactly. The economy is so dynamic. There are always someone who basically sell at a loss or actually at a loss. We call that a loss leader, right? A loss leader. I sell it to you at a loss so that you come into my store. That is just something we do. For example, matzah in America, right? This is one of those things that shock people when they get to Israel. In America, they give you machine matzah for free. When you go to ShopRite and you go to Wolbams and you go to shop, Stop and Shop, if you buy $500 of things, they give you matzah for free. And if you buy it, it's like a dollar, right? In Israel, it's like 28 shekel for a five kilo thing. Why is it expensive in Israel? Because in Israel, they charge you the price. And in America, it's a loss leader, right? Because there's a very simple reason. In Israel, Pesach is like Christmas. Meat and wine, the prices go down. They're on sale. In America, Pesach comes and meat triples in price. So if they can get you into the in to buy kosher meat, so the fact that they give you the matzah, big deal. Who cares? You just spent $1,000 on meat for your Seder. So they'll give you matzah for free. In Israel, I stock up on wine for six months at Pesach time because the prices go down to like 10 shekel a bottle, right? So... Yes, I know. Wow, that was what I said the first time. I was like, really? You can get Cabernet and Merlot for 10 shekel a bottle? I stock up until Sukkot when the prices go down again. Um, 10 shekel, 12 shekel, whatever. It depends on the quality, but things go down. So people sell things at a loss. And you're going to tell me what's the price of matzah? I don't know. In America, it's a loss leader. In Israel, it's cheap, but it's not sold at a loss. 
And he says, Ulumato. On the other hand, people sell things for a million, for, for right, luxury, right? If you want to shop at Whole Foods, you know what you're getting yourself into. You want to shop at Banana Republic, you know what you're getting yourself into. You want to buy a beer at the World Cup, you know what you're getting yourself into. The Kevin and he says, look, you want to, you could go from one end of the earth to the other, like that. Take a plane, go buy it. Now, this is where I love that he's a posik in the Haredi world, so he's very careful what he writes. Communication is developed, so much, so you could order things by phone, and with other means, right? He doesn't call it the internet by name. You can order things by phone or other ways. You can get delivery to your house. How are you supposed to figure out a price? He says, in the modern economy, it is just accepted. Everyone charges whatever it pays for them. The rule in the modern economy, economy is buyer beware, right? We all know, forget Amazon, forget AliExpress, right? Even when you go into your supermarkets, right? Half the supermarkets you go to in America have price match and you can download a million and a half apps on your phone. You don't even have to check, right? You can go in and you can press the button and it will tell you, that there is a supermarket down the street that charges less and you can price match, right? If you don't do that, you don't take advantage, that's your problem, right? So he says, it's the responsibility of the buyer to survey the market, to figure out what you want to pay. And since it's the job of the buyer and not the seller, Remember the Rambam who says, if I tell you, I know it's worth a quarter of a million dollars, but I'm not parting with this property unless you pay me a million. And that's okay. He says, that is our entire economy. It's as if we all entered into the economy and said, on condition that there is no such thing as overcharging. He says, And therefore in the modern economy, most items just don't have a price. They just don't have a price. Prices don't exist. Because the prices change from morning, right? From one day to the next. Based on supply and demand. Now, writing in Israel, as he does, he has a chiddish, he has a novel position that if something is price controlled, then even less than a sixth, because by law, you're not allowed to charge even an extra agora, an extra cent, right? Therefore, he says, on things which are price controlled, you can't, even less than a six, you have to return the money because you that was the law. That is the assumption of the economy is that on 98% of, of things, there is no price and you can charge whatever you want. And on bread, eggs, milk, and cheese, right? There's a specific price and you can't charge more or less. But fundamentally, what Ravasher Weiss says is, look, The modern economy, it's not just that it's hard to figure out a price. There is no such thing as a price. It's as all if we all entered into our economic lives and said, 
on condition that the laws of Onah just don't apply, right? If I want to pay extra, to, so it says Banana Republic, then I will pay extra, it says Banana Republic. I don't want to walk to the supermarket. I want to buy it in the Makolet for twice the price. I'll do that. I want a cold Coke in a ball game, right? I want a cold beer in Qatar. Fine. I will walk. I will pay whatever price. I'll do what I want. I know what I'm getting myself into. I know what I want, right? It's COVID, right? And I live in a $5 million apartment in Tel Aviv. And suddenly I decide I want a backyard. So I will go and I will offer $5 million to someone in Naharia who yesterday his property was $100,000, but now I want to escape Tel Aviv. And this is what happened all over Israel. So I will pay them. And if they want to take my 5 million to give me a backyard so I can escape in our lockdown over lockdown, so I'll do it, right? That's the way the market works. That's what we do. And Russia Weiss says, and does that mean that the laws of Ona practically are basically irrelevant in the modern economy? Yes. <laughs> Short answer, yes. Now that's radical for two reasons. First of all, for those of you who like economics, he's clearly rejecting the idea of an objective theory of value, not the labor theory of value and not any other theory of value. He's taking a very simple subjective theory of value, right? Value is determined by what people are willing to pay. There is no objective price floating out there in the metaphysical worlds that you can point to. It just doesn't exist. That's point one, which is interesting if you care about economics and economic theory. But the second point in terms of the, the way he conceives of Torah is really radical, right? He says, look, once you take a subjective theory of value and I look at our modern economy and I say, you know what? There's basically no such thing as prices. That means that it's legitimate to say that the Torah isn't telling me there must be practically limitations on you because of Ona'a that there must be a price and you must not diverge from it. That's not what the Torah is saying. The Torah, at least some of the Torah's laws, not all of them, obviously, right? Right. You can't say, if there is a seven-day week, then I keep Shabbat. But if I decide that there's a 10-day week, then Shabbat ceases to exist. You can't do that. Shabbat exists. And whatever the world decides, the world decides on a 10-day work week, Jews are still going to keep Shabbat every seventh day. Certain laws, obviously, apply in all circumstances. But Rav Asher Weiss is saying it. not all laws are like that. Certain laws, the Torah is telling you how to react if the reality you face is X. But it's not telling you that you have to have a world in which X is true. And therefore, Rav Asher Weiss says, you know what? There are certain laws, and in this case, it's an economic law. It's the, the laws of pricing. Where he just says, you know what? It doesn't bother me to say that this law basically for almost all intents and purposes is not relevant. Not because it's not important. No, it is important, but like it just doesn't exist. The Torah says, if there's a price, don't overcharge. It didn't tell you there has to be a price. If you live in a world with no prices because of Banana Republic Gap, Old Navy phenomenon and the Coca-Cola phenomenon be between a ball game and the Makolet and Amazon and AliExpress and whatever. So then, okay. So the Torah doesn't practically apply. It's not a loophole. 
This isn't a loophole. I'm not finding some, I'm not squeezing a loophole. I'm just telling you the Torah responded to a certain reality, but it didn't tell you that reality needed to exist. And that's a very radical thing to say in general. I may agree with him. I happen to agree with him, right? I think it makes a lot of sense, but that doesn't make it less radical, right? It means that not every law in the Torah and not every economic law in the Torah is telling you what the economy needs to look like. It's just telling you how to respond if the economy looks a certain way. Okay, I have a question here from Noah. I think it's not the case that we lack a price so much as we have far more finely granulated price for most things. A gluten-free bun at a kosher restaurant is literally the same bun I have at home, but it's a separate product with a separate price because it's at the restaurant. Um, yes and no, meaning gluten-free buns are expensive in general. <laughs> They're more expensive. I know this very well, right? Yes, wonderful. Um, and they're a different price from that at the restaurant. That's true. But it's hard to say that it's so granulated because look, the same gluten-free bun at uh, um, Burgers Bar um, is probably less, right, less expensive than if I'm buying, you know, a uh, not a burger, but I'm buying a steak at, I don't know, Rosa's, I don't know, right? Which is a little bit more high-end, right? So it could be that just everything is more granulated, but the fact that even the same bun at a restaurant will depend on, is it a mid-level restaurant, a high-end restaurant, right? Now, again, you could say there is such a thing as a price. And again, Rizal Menachem Goldberg says there's such a thing as a price, even though it's hard to figure out what it is. And Ravosner thinks there's a price. But what I wanted to point out through this issue of pricing is that these are two completely different views of how halacha functions in general, but specifically on economic issues, where Rav Zalman Goldberg and Rav Vosner are basically assuming that, look, if the Torah tells me that you have to respect pricing, that means that a Torah-based economy must have prices. Now you got to figure out what those prices are and deal with it accordingly. Rav Asher Weiss says, no, it's plausible that at least some laws in the Torah have no, there's nothing wrong with saying that they apply, they tell you not to take advantage of certain circumstances, if those circumstances exist, but they don't actually weigh in on whether those circumstances, circumstances have to exist. And therefore, if you live in a world where the circumstances don't exist, so there's nothing wrong. So again, as I said at the beginning of this year, I'm, what I wanted to do was take a very local issue and point out how this very local issue really speaks to a very important fundamental question, right? The local issue is, do, do the laws of overcharging and pricing apply in the modern economy? Rizal Menachem Goldberg, yes, but it's hard to figure out. Ravosner, yes, and everyone is overcharging at all times because they're greedy. Ravasha Rice, no, there's no such thing as a price, except maybe with things that are price controlled. But the broader question they're asking is, does the fact that the Torah has a set of laws that relate to prices indicate that the Torah believes there must be such a thing? Rizalman Echemi Goldberg or Vosner, yes. Right? You can't have a reality, you can't have a world in which the Torah's laws become impractical. They just don't re aren't relevant. And Ravasha Rice says, why not? Not all laws, right? Shabbat will always apply, but certain laws, it's, it's not heretical to say 
The Torah wants you to respect prices if they exist. But it doesn't tell you that an economy has to have prices. You don't want to have an economy with prices. You want to have a world which is dominated by Amazon and AliExpress and luxury items and and as Noah said, granulated pricing, depending on whether it's a restaurant and a high-end restaurant and a and a and a, you know a, a cheap restaurant or it's home or supermarket or Costco. So live in that economy. Who cares? And that I think is such an important question because every time, right, we have all these laws, so many laws in the Torah that relate to economic issues. Some of them are going to be true in every economy, right? Some of them are like Shabbat, right? This is always true. But some of them, you have to ask, does the Torah care whether it's true or is it just telling you if X, then Y? But it's not telling you X. It's just giving you an if then, right? But the, it's not weighing in on whether that reality uh, needs to exist. Now, the sources in 15 through 17, which I won't read inside, right? This is what I think, right? And again, my my... I'm torn, right? The two issues that I want to still deal with, just to give you a heads up, one is competition, right? We have to discuss the Torah's perspective on competition. Um, and the second one I want to deal with is the other side of this equation, which is not, um, is there such a thing as a price? But in a modern economy, is there such a problem as price manipulation? Meaning, is there, right? Is there a problem with playing with the market such that prices go up? I know that logically, what we should do next week is the question of price manipulation. Um, but my tendency is to say, even though it's related to this week, to do competition next week, because the question of how Allah relates to competition, whether it encourages it, limits it, um, is obviously very fundamental. Um, and as we're going to see, Rasha Weiss's analysis, like his analysis here, is going to really take into account the complexities of the modern market. Um, and how that changes the way we think about competition law. So my tendency is to say next week, we'll talk about competition. And once we have this mechanism in place and recognize that the modern economy might fundamentally change the way we think about things, we'll realize that that's important in competition on law as well. Uh, and then if we have time, then in the last week, we'll come back to the question of price manipulation. Um, that's my tendency, but I'm open to people saying differently. Um, but at least the introduction to the issues of, uh, of price manipulation is here in the final sources. But like I said, my goal for tonight, which I think we accomplished, was to focus on a localized issue, the question of whether the laws of pricing still exist, but use that to ask the big question, which is, do we think that every single law that the Torah has, specifically in economic laws, tells us either how we react to realities if they exist, or automatically tells us the realities that we must see in our economy. With Rav Vazner and Vazam Nehemia saying, if the Torah says there are laws of pricing, then every economy must have some sort of mechanism to determine pricing. And Rav Asher Weiss saying, there's nothing wrong with saying that the Torah doesn't need to be practically, um, that not every Torah law needs to be practically relevant in every circumstance. It's legitimate to say, that the Torah sometimes is telling you, this is how you react if the reality is such, but, the, but whether or not the reality should be such, we just don't weigh in. And that I think is a very important question, which emerges from this local question of does the Torah conceive of pricing and how do you deal with the laws of overcharging in the complex modern economy? And I actually finished on time. So with that, I'll open it to questions, um, either in the chat or I'll stop the share, uh, either in the chat 
or people can ask, uh, you know, just ask. Um, I have to run, but I want to say I listened intensively and I love when you read the Hebrew and uh, it's fascinating. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jennifer. Take care. Um, yeah. See you, you next too. week. See you next week. Yeah, that's you're a wonderful teacher. Thank you so much. Um, um, and of course, everyone can always follow up with me by email, as you know. My email's on the top of the source sheets, as always. Um, uh, I'm just thinking about like I'm just thinking about in, with what you, a lot of what you were saying with how, with the granular pricing, the inconvenience pricing, and um, yeah, and I mean, I think part of it is that right is that um, you know, there's been a lot of studies done on the fact that um, yeah, that we don't realize that people don't didn't realize for a long time that yeah, the people are just willing to pay for convenience. Like that's just what it is, right? There was, uh, I saw a study at some, right? Uh, a study at some point, right? That they, that the people were surprised at the success of, of, uh, of iTunes, right? Because the, 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 per, the, the common wisdom, right? The, the regnant perception in economists was that the reason that you know, post a Napster, if you remember it, like whatever it was 20 years ago, right? No one would ever pay for songs again because they thought that the reason everyone was downloading music illegally was primarily about pricing, right? They just didn't want to pay. What they realized was that it's not true, that Americans, once it became easier to pay whatever it was, 99 cents for your favorite songs on iTunes or to pay on Spotify, people were happy to pay five bucks, 10 bucks. They don't care, right? Once it became easier, to 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 pay for it and just get everything to your iPhone. Um, people were willing to pay for Spotify and iTunes and whatever because it was about convenience. They didn't want to go out and buy the CD in the store, so they were downloading it. But it was but they had no problem paying, right? Um, and yeah, right. Someone said, right, we all blow so many of convenience. We all do, right? Meaning, do I know that I should, right? Obviously, we try to buy things at the supermarket, but you know that certain things you're not going to buy at the supermarket, and you're just going to go to the Makolet because it wasn't worth schlepping, and you're going to buy it at the Makolet, and that's just it. And we do that all the time, right? We all say, right? We know that, yes, if I make dinner, it'll be healthier, and it'll taste better, and, you know, whatever. But, you know, sometimes you just say, okay, but I had a busy week. I'm going to order pizza. Right, right. Not everyone's going to butcher their own cow. Yes, I mean, yeah. look. I mean, in, in 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 America, I never saw anyone do it. In Israel, you can you go into the standard supermarket and you can buy unkoshered liver, so you can mm -hmm. kosher it yourself. It is one eighth the price of buying it processed. You can you can you can buy unkoshered liver in some in at least in the New York area. Okay, there you uh, go. I know someone who's who's gotten shilas on that. Right. So like my wife does do it every so often, right? She'll, right. We'll go, we'll buy and she'll kosher it because it's one eighth the price and she likes it. It tastes better, but if it's busy, right. And she hasn't kosher So then yes, I will go and I will buy for the same price that I could buy two months worth of liver. I will buy one little thing of chopped liver at the takeout place because yeah, sometimes it's not worth koshering, right? It's a pain in the neck. And that's despite the fact that it saves money, despite the fact that my wife liked it, likes to taste better. Yeah, we all pay for convenience, right? But the fact that we all know we're doing it, right? We all know we're doing it. We all know we could do it cheaper and better in many cases. We still buy pizza, right? We still 
I'm, all, I'm also thinking of a different type of inconvenience where like you brought up shables and my thought is yes, you download WeChat, hope that you're not completely botching things on Baidu Translate and hope that, you know, things that, you know, the guy in Shenzhen who's selling wigs, you know, mostly will be willing to do one off deals instead of a volume, then yes, you can get one for a lot cheaper, but that is a lot more work. Yeah, right. And that that's too, right? We also, we just pay for the time, right? Hmm. We, we just pay, it just, it's not worth it, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, and, th and this is, you know, look, it, it also, we can add, you know, if we had infinite time, we could also point out that there's a psychological component to it where we're also not good at figuring out value, right? So, so um, right, Dan Ariely loves giving this example, right? That, right, um, they've done many studies on this, but if you have a novice locksmith, that comes to your house and they don't know what they're doing. So it takes them an hour to fix your lock and they give you a price of a hundred dollars, right? People will happily give them the hundred dollars and sometimes they'll give them a tip. If the expert locksmith who's been doing it for 25 years knows exactly what they're doing, comes in and fix your lock on the first try in five minutes and charges you a hundred dollars, people get upset. Now that's illogical. The first person messed up 10 times, right? And the second one, you're paying for the fact that he has 25 years of experience and you didn't have to suffer through all his mistakes that he made in the first decades that he worked, right? You just get the advantage. And what do you care? You can get into your house, right? But we also pay because we feel like we should pay for people's struggle, right? Does it make any sense? No, it makes no sense, right? There's a lot of things that we do that don't make sense, right? Or they make sense if you care about convenience, right? Or you care about making sure you get what you want rather than the price, right? Yeah, that all of those things complicate, right? What a price is because we don't, right? There's all these psychological factors that further complicated plus global ship, right? International shipping and all. And that's Ravasha Weiss's point is what is a price? And again, Ravasha Weiss is willing to say, yeah, okay. That shows you there's no such thing as a price in the modern economy. We pay whatever we're willing to pay for whatever reasons we're willing to pay it. Right? And Razam Nehemia and Ravazner say, no, somebody, if, if the prices why are that wildly different, then somebody is cheating the system, right? It can't just be that, well, I'm willing to bake for convenience. No, right? If they're charging you extra for the cold Coke, right? Rather than, right? Like you go to the same supermarket. We know you buy the one that's not refrigerated. You buy six for a dollar. You buy the one that's in the fridge at the front desk, right? At, at the cashier, you pay right? It's worth it to me that it's cold now, right? But Ravosner will say, no, it's not, right? <laughs> they are cheating you by putting it in the fridge. And Russia Weiss will say, no, you're willing to pay for it to be cold. That was your prerogative, right? All right. Um, um, and if anyone in the attendees thing has questions, can we the email, your sorry, hand function. But otherwise, I'm going to kind of cut it off and say, thank you, Reviseering for another day. It looks like there's some very interesting topics coming up next week. People should continue to come. Our next class at Drisha is Women in Rabbinic Law and Narrative, starting in about 20 minutes at 2:30 p.m. Eastern Time with Dr. Shana Ship. You can find out about this and more Drisha classes on our website at drisha.org/slash classes. Thank you, everyone, and have a okay, good day. Thank you. And if there's one in or 20 night, minutes, then uh, take a break and uh, enjoy. Okay, mm -hmm. see you next week. See you all next Thank week. Thank you. See ya. See you.